Well, good morning again, church. Thanks so much for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into this uh, sanctuary, into this space. And for those of you that are gathered with us for Crosspoint at Home, thanks for bringing the church into your home and uh, in your living room, around your dining room table. Uh, Thanks for tuning in and and joining in. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie. It's my joy and it's my privilege uh, to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint and to get to open up God's word uh, with you this morning as we uh, continue this series called Habits of Joy, which we're taking a a four-week break from our series through, which we've been in most of the year, through the Gospel of John, to talk about rhythms, practices, habits, however you want to speak of those things, that help us experience joy, cultivate joy in us. And if you're new to this series, I'll catch you up in just a moment. One of the things that uh, I have appreciated over the years is the writings of a, a seminary, or not a seminary professor, a college professor who is an author by the name of James K.A. Smith. He's up at Calvin College uh, back in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And one of the things he writes in his book, You Are What You Love, he tells this particular story of his wife um, who got way into, and still is to this day, sort of finding food that is like locally sourced, that's organic, um, that she's growing a lot of her own you know, fruits and vegetables as much as one can in that, that part of the, the world year-round, right? Um, she's doing that. She's going to the farmer's market, and she's trying to tell her husband, James, who also goes by Jamie, uh, she's trying to tell him, like, hey, you need to pay attention to these things. These are good things, not only for you physically, but also in service of the, the local economy and the local community and all these beautiful things that happen when we pay attention to like where our food comes from, Okay. And as he's telling this particular story in his book, he found himself, on, he said a little bit, dismissing what his wife was saying, but then he found some authors, all right, that began to espouse similar things, and he talked about, like, the frustration of many wives, many women, like, oh, great, like, you didn't listen to me, but you're going to go listen to these other sources. But anyway, he says that's how it played out, and one author in particular that he discovered, all right, and if you've never read this man's works, I would commend it to you, uh, a guy by the name of Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry inhabits a particular region, a small town in rural Kentucky, who is a brilliant author, poet, novelist, like all of these things, but he's also a local farmer. And he is convinced that the best possible way to live is to live off of the land, to not have these big, massive farms. But what does it look like in the local? And to inhabit a local space and to pay attention to where your food comes from. And even if you're, you know, food, there's ways to do things humanely, even in the killing of animals to eat, like all that stuff, he would espouse all of that. And so James finds himself in this spot where he's like really becoming captivated by this work and this thought. And he's like, wow, this would be amazing, like how this might transform our life and what this could be lo- look like for him and his wife together and, and paying attention to the local food source and economy and all in the local community, like getting very, very small, all right? And he found himself oftentimes taking a particular book of Wendell Berry with him. And he says literally anytime he had like a spare minute or two, he would open that book and he would begin to pour through these works and these essays. And in him grew more and more this conviction, oh, this, this is a better picture of how we can live. And one day as he's reading this book, he looks around as he's reading about local food sources and the local economy, and he's reading about the local community and all of these things, he looks up and realizes that he's reading these profound books of Wendell Berry here 
in the food court at Costco, all right? Now, I'm not knocking the food court at, at Costco, all right? But if one was to pick something that would be the antithesis of what Wendell Berry would espouse, it might be here. And he says he found himself literally with mustard on his face. He's eating a foot-long hot dog that was probably not from animals that were treated humanely, right? As he's downing this, sipping his Coke, and reading about this, he's like, oh, there is a massive disconnect between what I know to be true and what I practice to be true. And so what we're doing in this series, in many ways, is helping us not only wrestle with what we might know to be good practices, but what do we actually do? And so he talks about it this way in reference to this time at Costco, and he refers to growing as a Christian. It's this big theological word that's called sanctification. It just means to, to grow in Christ-likeness. And he describes it this way. He says, our sanctification, the process of becoming holy and Christ-like, is more like a Weight Watchers program than listening to a book on tape. If sanctification is tantamount to closing the gap between what I know and what I do, i.e. no longer reading Wendell Berry and Costco, essentially, it means changing what I want. And that requires submitting ourselves to disciplines and regimens that reach down into our deepest habits. And the Spirit of God meets us in that space, in that gap, not with lightning bolts of magic, but with the concrete practices of the body of Christ that conscripts our bodily habits. So each week, we've been looking at a different practice in the way you saw it in the video a moment ago of pulpit, chair, table, and square. And the pulpit is simply the, the call to gather what we're doing here on Sunday morning, the importance of this. And if you want to grow as a disciple and you want to experience more joy, when we avoid these practices, when we give up the habit of meeting together, as the book of Hebrews speaks of, there is a direct correlation to our lack of joy. So we talked about that in week one, and then last week we looked at the rhythm of chair, which is simply meant to be, what's that space, the time, the physical location, the spot that you go to on a consistent, aspirationally, even a daily basis, that comfortable chair to sit and to contemplate, and to consider your story in the grand scheme of God's story that he's writing, and to open up the scriptures and allow the scriptures to speak to you, and not only for you to read the scriptures, but for them to read you, and to pray, and to remember the grandness of God. Like, we need those reminders. So as we've looked at pulpit and chair, today we come to table, and I would put it to you this way, that the table then is our call to community. And that includes what we're doing right here, but it is far more than what happens on a Sunday morning. That table is being involved in the lives of other people, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. As we're going to see here in our text this morning, it's not that the Bible speaks of the church like a family. It actually is the family. It is the family of God. It's one of the images that the, the Bible uses, one of the images that Jesus gives to us that we might understand what we're part of. The Bible knows nothing of an isolated individual Christian. Our world is even picking up on this, that joy is so often tied to community. I don't know if you know this, but over the last several years, beginning in, I think, 2017, this happened in the UK. It's now happened in Japan. They have appointed ministers of loneliness, not to help make people feel more, more lonely, but rather government officials in positions to help deal with the crisis of isolation, of loneliness, and then what that leads to in terms of a mental health crisis, like all of that. 
And our world is picking up on like, it's not good to be alone. And we as the church know, hey, that's straight out of the Bible. I mean, we're talking Genesis 1 and 2 language here that God himself said, let us make man in our image. That God exists in community as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And you, whether you're a Christian or not, you are made in the image and likeness of God. You are created for community. It's why God would look out over his perfect creation and say it's not good for man to be alone. That God has created us in such a way, fascinatingly, fascinating as this is, that we need more, that sounds almost heretical, but to say we need more than just him. He has created us to actually need one another. That's part of his good design. And so this morning, I want to explore this practice, this habit of what does it look like to gather around the table? Now, again, it's not confined to simply sitting at a dining room table, but I think that image calls to mind, right? This wonderful, like, relationships, friendship, closeness, like, just a good meal and the conversation that takes place. And if you do that by cooking a meal with vegetables you grew in your own, own garden or you stayed at the food court at Costco, I'm not as actually concerned. My concern is more that are you and I getting time with people. And so let me read our main text this morning, we'll look at a few different things. Um, and again, you can go to cplife.church on your phone and you'll see the text for this morning as well as anything that's up on the slides uh, will be listed there. There's space to take notes. But I want to look at this text and we're going to talk about several tables this morning. We're going to look at the table that is reserved for us, the table that's set for us, and the table that redeems us this morning. And we'll spend the bulk of our time in Romans chapter 12. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a group of people, and he's telling them. I mean, all of Romans 12, I would commend it to you. Just go, like, read at some point today if you get the time. But we'll just look at verses 9 to 16. But it unpacks for us what it looks like when a group of people commit to one another, where they're devoted to one another. It says this, Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs and pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but instead associate with the humble and do not be wise in your own estimation. This is God's word for us this morning. And as, we're, as we get into it, we're gonna come back to that main text in just a moment. But one of the things that I think helps orient us to the story that we're part of is to look at where this idea of the table shows up, this beautiful picture of God's people gathered around a table for a feast. It's this multi-course meal that's gonna go on forever and the Lord is providing it, the Lord is doing it. And it's the table that is reserved for us. Like you think about having a reservation at the, the best restaurant that you can possibly imagine going to. You've got the best table in the house. You're actually not even going to have to foot the bill for it. And you are welcome at that table in that restaurant anytime you want. You just walk in and hear it. I mean, that would be pretty epic. Just like, whoa. And every time you walk in, they say your name Right? It's like Norm at Cheers, right? So the food's better. And you're just walking in and just like, man, this is amazing. Like, just welcome. Here is your seat. 
And yet it's not just a seat for you, it's a seat for the family of God down through the ages. The saints that have gone before us, the saints who will come after us, every single person who is in Christ is there. And this table is massive. Like it just stretches as far as the eye can see. And there is an epic feast. And this gets to go on, not just for a certain period of time, but forever. And the way the scripture talks about this table that has been reserved for you is this wedding feast. And so in Revelation chapter 19, it's near the very end of the Bible. I'll put the words up here on the screen. There's this vision. There's this, and it starts with like this this clamor, there's this noise, there's this rumble. It's like something amazing is about to happen. And so John writes this, then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the noise at the base of the Niagara Falls. I mean, it's just, this, just like this loud rumble and like the rumbling of loud thunder. And here's what was being said. Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. If we stop right there as we talk about habits of joy, all of this, the table is one of the gifts that the Lord has given to us so that we might actually experience joy. Joy is found not only in community, but ultimately in a community that is worshiping the Lord Jesus. God calling you to glorify him is the directest course to you experiencing joy. He's not calling you to glorify him, to rob you of joy, but so that you and I might actually experience it. So he says, let us be glad and rejoice. Give him glory. And here's what's happening. Because the marriage of the lamb has come. And so we are the family of God. We're the body of Christ. We're also the bride of Christ is how it's spoken of here. The marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride has prepared herself. And now look at these words. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Now, when we think about that, and you think about a bride walking down the aisle and radiant and in the white dress, it's telling us this is what we have put on, but we were given it. That language means the active agent is not you and me because my, so to speak, dress that I would put on, all right, is tarnished and tattered and soiled, like all of that. It's dirty. But because of the work of Jesus on the cross, he took all of our shame, he took all of our unrighteousness, and he was cut off from the Father so that we could be brought into the family, so that we could be made the bride of Christ, so that we could be part of the marriage supper of the Lamb, to be part of this epic feast and this epic celebration. And as this kicks off, we look out and realize we are clothed in splendor in the clothes, the righteousness of Jesus. We have that, and it says it was a gift that's been given You didn't earn it, I didn't earn it. If it's up to us, like we're dead in our sins, our trespasses, our transgressions, but we are clothed. And then it continues and says this. Then he said to me, write this down. Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the lamb. And he also said to me, these words of God are true. Friends, He's telling us, you can take this to the bank. This is a guarantee. This is what awaits us. There is a table that has been reserved. Your name tag is right there by your chair at that particular spot on the table, and it's not going away if you're in Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you will do. If you are in Christ, that table awaits you, that you have the righteousness of Christ. And it says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast 
of the lamb. It's an epic celebration. It's the best food. It's the best drink. It's the best of everything because we're in God's presence and it never ends. Like you have that thing that you look forward to in life and then it comes and it provides, oh, that was, that was really fun. And then eventually it ends and you're kind of like, oh, oh, it's, it's over, right? It's kind of like the, the lull after opening all the Christmas gifts and like, oh, well, 365 more days until we get to do this again, right? Like that sort of, that ache that's there, it's not gonna be present. The marriage feast. This is the table that awaits us. It's a table that's being prepared by the Lord Jesus himself for you as his radiant bride, part of the family of God. Now, if that is where the story is heading, if that's the table that's been reserved right now, as we go back then to Romans 9, there is a table right now, though, that I would put before you is ready, or if we kind of use this sort of marriage, wedding imagery, like maybe this is the, the rehearsal dinner of sorts. If this is where it's ha- heading, and you and I are going to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God forever, it would help us to develop the habit of practicing that now. Not to put that off and to say, how do we engage in this right now? What does it look like for you and I to be people that gather around the table, that are invested in people's lives, and people are invested in our life? And throughout the scriptures, I laid this out just a moment ago, but just to reiterate it, and we see it here in Romans 12, the assumption, the given, is community. There is no such thing as the isolated individual Christian that doesn't need the church, that doesn't need community. You might be massively introverted on that scale. You still need people. The Lord did not say it's not good for man to be alone unless he happens to be this on the Myers-Briggs. That's not, and listen, I lean that way. I'm just telling you, we need people. Specifically, we need our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the assumption, the baseline, the given is community. So when we talk as a church of getting plugged in and doing things, it's not the only way to experience community, but we're calling you actually to be obedient to what the Lord has for you, and in doing so, there will actually be joy. And I would go a step further. I'm not calling you. Pastor Eric's not calling you. None of the leadership is calling you. The Lord Jesus himself is calling you and inviting you into community And he's telling you, if you don't have this practice or this habit, you will miss out on what the Lord has for you. This is why just a few verses earlier in Romans 12, 4 to 5, it said this. Now as we have many parts in one body, Paul's using this body imagery, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We like to operate like this is mine, this is, this is my life to own, this is my, my life to, by myself. The Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible speaks of the fact that like, I belong to you and you belong to me and you belong to the person sitting next to you and behind you and in front of you, right? Like that's the call. We are members of one another. We don't get to skirt past that. Like that is actually how the Bible talks and how it speaks of us. We're members of one body in Christ and we need the body. This is why Paul in writing to the church in Corinth would say, hey, Again, he picks up on this imagery again. He's like, well, the ear doesn't say, well, I'm, you know, yeah, I'm not the eye, and therefore like, I'm not part of the body. No, like, all of it is necessary. I don't know the particular gifts that you have. I don't know the passions that you have, but the Lord does, and the Lord has brought you here in this time, in this place. You're not here by accident. 
But he's also calling you to do more than simply gather on a Sunday morning. He is calling you and I to be his church. Maybe you know this already. I've not been out to places like California where they have the beautiful redwood forest, but perhaps you guys have been to spots where you see massive trees, something like like this that you see there on, on the screen. And what I know about these things, just from reading about them, is not only are they massive in in height, right? They can go up 300 feet or so. They're so wide, you're not going to try and bear hug this and put your arms around it. Like they just, the circumference of it is just massive. But those that study these particular trees know this about them, that they have a relatively, compared to other trees, a relatively shallow root system. Sometimes a 300-foot tree might only have roots that go down five or six feet maybe 10 to 12 at the most. But if you were to go and you were to dig up the soil a bit and you were to kind of be able to peer underneath the surface, what you would see is not an isolated tree. And this is the picture I think so often we like to have, like, I'm gonna be this growing tree and I'm right here and look at me and I'm amazing. That is not the picture. The picture is a cluster of these redwood trees that as their roots spread out, they don't go very deep, but they go 50, 60 feet wide and they begin to intertwine, interlock with the other root system from the trees that are around them. And when the winds come and the storms come and we think about this the storms the winds of life the reason they don't topple over these are massive the reason they don't is because they are locked together to the trees that are around them if there ever was a picture of what the church is called to be this starts to get at it this is what paul is talking about we're members of one another interlocked are you interlocked with anybody if you're not you won't be experiencing the joy that the lord has for you And you will be robbing other people of what you bring. So often we think, oh, well, maybe I don't need community. I don't have anything to offer. You're literally telling the God of the universe who made you, who knit you together in your mother's womb, you're made in his image and likeness. Like, I don't need other image bearers, and they don't actually need me. It's just completely ridiculous. And so the call, the baseline, the assumption is community, all right? And the the call within that is love. And so let's look for a few moments then at this text in Romans 12, and each one of these could be unpacked at great length. We don't have the time for that this morning, but let's try and fly through a few of these things thinking, how is love described? Because he starts out right away in verse 9, let love. It's not speaking of a romantic love. It's this word agape. It's this communal, sacrificial love. And it starts out right away. It says, love is sincere. Let love be without hypocrisy, depending on your translation. And that word hypocrisy, that word sincere, I should say, is rather where we get the word like for hypocrisy or hypocrite. And the idea there is when we, there's a lot of pretense and pretending. And the last year and a half, one of the things we have battled culturally, you know this to be true, right? We're experiencing this right now, is different opinions on masks. Can I put before you the bigger mask issue we have has nothing to do with COVID and the pandemic. The real mask issue is will I be willing, will you be willing to allow yourself to be seen and known and to see and know other people, to take the mask off? Or as Genesis 3, when the Lord comes looking for Adam and Eve and they've sewn together fig leaves, we hide We're full of shame. We don't know what to do. And so we pretend and we act like we have it all together. And the calling here, right out of the gate, let love not be full of hypocrisy. To take the mask off, to be seen, to risk vulnerability. And with that, then, 
Love is also a commitment or committed to holiness. Detest evil, cling to what is good. How interesting that the Lord gives us a word in talking about love, he immediately talks about like abhor, detest, hate what is evil. Like why are those things going together? Like do those things actually go together? But you've perhaps heard this said by numerous people down through the ages. I don't actually know who originally said it. But the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Hate, at least there's some sort of emotion behind it. Kind of a, I know where I stand, but just this indifference. And so there's this calling here to hate what is evil. The Lord calls us to love him, to honor him, to glorify him, to love our neighbor, all of these things. We are to detest what is evil, anything that would pull us away from what the Lord has for us. The calling actually is not a sitting back. It's not an indifference. It actually is a hate that. And then to cling to what is good. And the language here is like a binding together. We might think in present day, it's sort of like a being super glued, all right, to what is good. What is the good and the beautiful and the true? It's the calling. It's where Jesus shows up full of both grace and truth. That those things go together. They cannot be divorced from one another. To be bound. To be glued together. Maybe the weird image, you guys remember this from the Christmas story, right? And like, hey, you should lick that pole, right? And he does this, and then he's just stuck. If you've not seen this, all right, you can go watch that at some point. Now, that's a bit of a painful imagery, and so maybe that breaks down a bit because none of us really want that. But that sort of image of just like you're super glued, you're bound, you're stuck, right? In the best possible sense, he's saying cling to what is good. We need to cling to it. And guess what? We need one another to do that. Love is also devotedly affectionate. Continues, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, that we are the family of God. We are to be devotedly affectionate to one another. One of the best images of this in my mind, at least in the world of literature or film or when the they go and make a film, and I've referenced this before. You guys who know me know, like, oh, you know, give it every 30 to 60 days, and Jamie will probably do a Lord of the Rings reference. So here we go, all right? Um, but in this, it's at the end of the very first movie, all right? The Fellowship of the Ring. Again, speaking of what? The community, the fellowship. They've been journeying together. And you have these hobbits and Frodo and his best friend Sam, all right? And you've got all these other, you know, men and creatures and stuff that, that are with them. But at near the end of book one, at the end of the film, the fellowship sort of breaks up. It's dispersed. And there's this scene, if you can recall this, where Frodo, who is bearing the responsibility, he's got to destroy the ring. Like all of humanity, all of like creation, Middle Earth is like on his back, right? He's like, I got to go and destroy this so I can save the world. It's a bit of pressure, all right? And here he goes, and he's, there's this river, and he jumps in, all right? Onto this, he jumps into this boat, rather, and he begins to paddle his way out, and he's trying to leave, and he's trying to go off, isolated, right? He's gonna go do it. And Sam, who is his best friend, you see in this particular scene there, begins to wade out into the water, and Frodo begins to yell back at him. He yells, Sam, I'm going alone, to which Sam yells back at the boat, yes, I know, Frodo, and I'm going with you. 
right? And like that is the commitment. That, that's the friendship. And even a few seconds later, he realizes, oh, yeah, I can't swim. And he begins to drown and kind of thrash around there in the water, right? I mean, the commitment, the sacrifice. I'm going alone. Yes, yes, you are. And I'm going with you. Devotedly affectionate. We need that. And that's part of what the church is to one another. And as I say these things, can we just recognize from it? There is an aspirational nature to this. Have there been times where you haven't felt that the church is anything but devotedly affectionate? I'm sure you have because you have run up against brothers and sisters in Christ who are sinners just like you. None of this is meant to paint a picture like, oh, we've got this all figured out. That happens at the table that is reserved for us. And right here, right now, it is a grind, it is a struggle, but in that, a commitment, a radical commitment to that actually brings about joy. Love also is showing honor, and I love the language here as it continues. Certain translations will say, take the lead in honoring one another. Maybe your translation says, outdo one another in showing honor. That according to the Bible, like, if you want to be competitive, the thing to be competitive about is like, I'm going to show more honor to that person than they can to me. Like, I'm going to take the lead in that. Imagine for a moment how different things would look if you and I operated with that posture. Certainly out in the world, but let's just talk here for a moment. Like, what if you walked in this morning? Because I think these things, as I said, the church is more than a Sunday gathering, but it's certainly not less than it. What if it just started here and flowed out that when people walked in this morning and you walked in, you thought, how can I show honor? I was listening to a podcast this week by Ray Ortland and Sam Alberry, and in it, they began having this conversation, this discussion, and I forget which one of them posed this question, but they said, here's an important thing to think about, and it was this question, how do you walk into a room? And certainly they did not mean in the physical sense, well, I put one step in front, you know, foot in front of the other, how do you walk into a room sort of thing. No, no, no. What's your posture? What's your disposition? And they began to unpack. You can either walk into a room with a posture that declares, I'm here. I've arrived. Show honor to me. Or you can walk into a room that sees other people, that moves toward other people, that says, it's not I'm here, you're here. You're here, like in the flesh and blood, like you're here. And I know that might freak somebody out if you walked up to him this morning, like you're here in the flesh and blood, like really, right? You know, like, but can we be honest? The biblical understanding that we're made in the image and likeness of God should create that sort of, whoa, you're here. How can I show you honor? How can I help you see the things that you might be blind to of the ways the Lord has gifted you and the passions you have? Somebody to speak truth into your life to say, I see you doing this. I saw the way you served here. I saw what you did. I want to honor you, my brother and sister. Imagine the sort of community this would be along the lines of what C.S. Lewis says in regards to just how we should view humanity. He's like, there are, no or there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. So people you're seated around right now, people in here, those of you that are watching online, people that are in your living room, like wherever you happen to be, right? There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. 
and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And this does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind, the joyful kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love is also full of sacrificial zeal. The Apostle Paul writes these words, do not lack in diligence, or do not lack diligence in zeal, be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Man, we could spend a ton of time unpacking that. And it doesn't mean this sort of skipping through life enthusiasm. I got all the zeal, right? I mean, some of us just aren't even wired that way. You see the most fake, hypocritical thing to just sort of try and pretend that. That's not the call. But what about a steadfastness that views the commitment that the Lord Jesus has to me and that empowers me, that motivates me, wants me to honor him with a sacrificial zeal? Do not lack diligence, be fervent in the spirit, to walk with the spirit, to serve the Lord, to rejoice in hope when in the circumstances say, there's no good reason to rejoice. If you're like, oh, you don't know the table that awaits me. You don't know the table that the Lord has set for me. You don't know the story that I'm part of. Yeah, circumstances would say there's no rejoicing. You might look at people like this and say they're fanatical, and I would put before you, no, 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 the fanatical person hasn't gone far enough. The gospel pulls us in. And says, oh my goodness, do you realize the story that is waiting for you? Do you realize what you're part of? And it creates this zeal and this enthusiasm, and it calls us to be persistent in prayer. Love is also generous and hospitable. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. That part of loving, part of being the family of God is to be generous with our time and our talent and our treasure. And also to share, to gauge in hospitality, which includes the people that you are friends with, but it goes beyond that because the way the Bible understands and speaks of hospitality is the love of the stranger, the pursuit of the stranger, the person that's on the margins, the person that you may not necessarily even have a connection with, and you realize, oh, the Lord Jesus has done this. And not only was I a stranger and he welcomed me in, I was an enemy and he brought me in. So that next time you're feeling like, I don't know if I can welcome this person in, you're like, you were an enemy of God. That's my reality. I've committed treason against God. And he's like, guess what? I'm going to come and I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to give everything for you. That's what motivates hospitality. There's an article in the, in the message notes, if you go um, at cplife.church, and it's linked out from there. I'd encourage you to read it. But there's a, a couple, and they wrote this article for... Um, her name's Rebecca McLaughlin, I believe, um, and her and her husband have these rules of engagement. And I've shared these before, but I think it's worth coming back to. I'm like, what does it look like even on a Sunday to extend hospitality and let it flow out from there? And so here's their rules. Rule number one, an alone person is an emergency. Rule number two, friends can wait. 
And rule number three of engagement is make introductions. I mean, think about that for a moment. An alone person is an emergency. They speak in the article of times where you're having that conversation, you're catching up with the friend. Oh, it's amazing. How was your week? And we're sharing all this stuff. And that's beautiful. I hope you get that time. But be willing to walk away from that friend will understand if you got to call them later on or text them and say, hey, I know it looked rude when I walked away. But if we understood the rules of engagement, I'd be like, no, I saw who you went to go talk with. Praise God. I'm so glad you walked away from me right then. That's what you should have done. Friends can wait. Not saying friends are not important, but they can wait five minutes and then make introductions. How do you invite other people into the connections that you have, that the Lord has given to you? Love is also blessing. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Again, we could spend a ton of time on this, but this is this rewording of what Jesus himself spoke in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. When he calls us to love our enemies, to go the extra mile, to turn the other cheek, to not only bless your enemies, but to pray for your enemies. I don't want to pray for my enemies. I want to harbor just enough bitterness and resentment that I can tap into some rage when I need it, be honest. Feel a little self-righteous. That, that's my disposition. And yet the calling, bless, do not curse. Love is sympathetic. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. To come alongside and to sit with people in the awkwardness. You're going to have those moments, right? And you don't know what to say. Most of the time it's good that we don't know what to say. Job's friends got in trouble the moment they opened their mouth. They were doing the right thing just sitting with him for a bit. And then they're like, oh, let me explain to you what the Lord has. Shut up. No, I just want to be sad for a moment. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Which sounds great unless the person is rejoicing in the thing that your heart has longed for. That's not easy. But you come back the table that's been set for you. And you realize, oh, I may not get everything that I want in this life, and other people may get the thing that I desire, but at the end of the day, I can rejoice in hope because this is the story that I'm part of. Harmonious, love is live in harmony with one another. The extent that we're able to pursue peace. We are a very divided culture right now. And I wish we could say, man, can you believe how crazy divided the culture is? The church has not done a great job of putting on display the harmony and the peace of Christ. I think we need to own that. We need to repent of the ways that we've been divisive and then put on display, this is what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of our king. And lastly, love is humble. Do not be proud and instead associate with the humble or talk about associate with the, with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. If any of this is going to work, this is why Paul drives at this point. He's going to turn the corner. If you read the rest of the chapter, it's about engagement with those outside of the church. But up until this point, he wraps up the crescendo of everything that he's been saying about how to love the family of God is love is full of humility. When we see what the Lord Jesus has done for us, the way he humbled himself, he emptied himself, the self-forgetfulness with which he lived. He didn't walk into the room and say, I'm here. He walked in, got down on his knees, and washed the disciples' feet. 
touched the leper, went to the home of the, the sinners, the tax collectors. That's what he did. Now, I know none of us will probably sing this, and I'm not going to sing this, but perhaps you're familiar uh, with the legendary Willie Nelson, all right? Some of you may know him. Uh, he's got a little song here. It's called, It's Hard to Be Humble, all right? Uh, here are the lyrics. Again, I will not sing it. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. You should look it up on YouTube. It's a fun video. Anyway, reality is, of course, I'm not going to sing that. I'm not going to say that. But it's there. The pride. Pride will absolutely decimate and destroy. It's Genesis 3 playing out again and again and again. It destroys churches. It destroys relationships. It destroys marriages. It destroys friendship. It destroys the family of God. Ray Ortland speaks of this and the wisdom that we need, commenting, I think, specifically on this. Do not be wise in your own estimation. I can think I'm pretty wise when I just keep to myself and I read my books and I listen to the podcasts, all right? And it's a growing pseudo-wisdom in my own estimation. And I need you to call me out. And you need the person sitting next to you to call you out and so on and so forth. They need you. Ortland says this way. Our various family backgrounds left every one of us at least a little weird. Can we say amen? Some of you have your family here. I have my family here. We can all embrace this, right? Has left us a little weird. So we need an honest friend from outside the tightly knit family to round us out. Every one of us needs to go to another person. And it's not to sit back and wait for them to do this. Go and find a person and say, help me see myself. Help me get sharper for Christ. And if no other person in your church is good enough to play that role for you, the problem is you. If you do not know anyone well enough yet to trust them at that level, are you seeking that person out? I'm not saying this is easy. But if we want to flourish in community, we want to experience all that God has for us, we want the joy around the table, this is what it's going to look like. So we'll close with this, because, man, that list, it can feel like, wow, yes, that would be beautiful. And then you know the reality of your community experience. You know the reality of the difficulty you're aware, at least to some level, of the brokenness and the dysfunction you bring. You're aware to some level of the brokenness and the dysfunction everybody else brings. And it can just be a mess. So what are we going to do? Is it just, do we just give up on it? Well, the scriptures don't speak to that at all. What we need is the table that redeems. And so church, to prepare us even for communion, there's, that's one of the ways the Lord's Supper, communion. The Eucharist, the table is spoken of. And so let me read these words. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What I need to operate in community is a word from outside of myself that reminds me who I am, that I'm a son of the king, and that I mess up all the time, but there is grace and there's forgiveness. You're a son, you're a daughter of the king. You can't name that in yourself. You can't go and put the white dress on yourself. It has to be given to you. And this meal, this table we're gonna participate in, all right, it's this little appetizer about the meal that ultimately awaits us, the table that ultimately awaits us. It says one author talked about the way to picture this when you come up is picture a table that just extends age upon age from the loved ones that you've lost over the years to the people like St. Augustine, going back to the Apostle Paul, Moses. I mean, just picture this table, and there is everybody. And so when you come up in a moment as a follower of Christ, or you at home gather the elements together, that's what you're part of. And it's saying, I know the table that awaits me. And these words remind us that it's only through the finished work of Christ that we are declared the beloved that we have a new identity and that we can actually rejoice together. I cannot live out this call to the table in my own strength. It is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, but it's what we're called to. So I'm gonna pray for us, and you're invited, if you're a follower of Christ, to come up, and while the worship team leads us over these next couple of songs, whenever you're ready, come up, get the elements, and partake in your time. You can do that standing, you can kneel, you can sit, pray, whatever it is that you need to do. But be reminded, as you see people come forward, you're part of this family. You're part of this story. It's the table that actually redeems. So let me pray for us. And as you consider these things, I'll put one last thing here. Take some time. What do you need to confess? How can you celebrate? And let me put before you very practically, make a commitment to get connected in community. You'll hear more about this at the end of the service, but go on our website. Stop, talk with one of us afterwards. Do not let this moment pass and think, ooh, I like the idea of community. Commit to it. Don't read the book in the food court of Costco. Actually engage. That's what we're called to. And let this meal nourish us. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness and your grace, your mercy. Thank you for this table that you've set. Jesus, thank you for the work of this table that cost you everything. That it led to you crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That you did that so that we would never be forsaken. That we as enemies would be made your friends. That we would be brought into the family. And that we might experience just grace upon grace. And this table now is that little appetizer for the table that you have set for us. Let it nourish us. Let it feed us. Let it sustain us. May we experience it for what it is. It's a means of your grace right here and right now so that we can live the table that is right now. So God, we need you. We also need one another. And so God, would you be building your church, connecting your church, God, help us to walk in humility. Help us to acknowledge that we need one another. 
May we see that even as we participate in this meal together. So God, as we engage in this meal, as we worship through song, God, I pray that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience just a deep and abiding joy. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.